Hello and welcome to On Air with Myrick O'Connell. I'm Howard Kaplan. This On Air podcast features attorneys from Myrick O'Connell, a full-service law firm with offices in Worcester, Westboro, and Boston. Today's topic, how can you take steps now to ensure your pet, yes, your dog, cat, or other beloved friends who are, let's face it, key members of the family for so many of us, are provided for should you no longer be around? What are we talking about? Pet trusts. And here with us to discuss them today is our guest, Myrick O'Connell partner, Tracy Craig. Tracy is chair of the firm's Trusts and Estates Group. She focuses her practice in estate planning, estate administration, prenuptial agreements, tax-exempt organizations, guardianships and conservatorships, and elder law. She is also an expert on pet trusts. Tracy Craig, welcome to On Air with Myrick O'Connell. Hi, Howard. Thank you. Nice to be here. So the first question is, I think a lot of listeners would wonder and are interested in, is what is a pet trust? So a pet trust is the ability to leave money for the benefit of your pet after you're no longer with us. So a a main issue that can occur is that tens of millions of people in the United States have pets. And pets are really considered members of the family for most of these pet owners. And pet owners spend billions and billions of dollars each year on their pets. And uh, something that also should be thought about as part of being a pet parent, quote unquote, is what is going to happen to your pet if something happens to you? So when we do somebody's estate plan, uh, people are typically thinking about things like their hard assets, like their house, their real estate, their bank accounts, their retirement accounts, those sorts of things. And while all of those definitely need to be dealt with, something that I also encourage all of my clients to think about is if something happens to you, what's going to happen to your pet, your cat, your dog, your parrot, um, whoever is, you know, whichever animal is a member of your family. And oftentimes what can happen if people don't plan is pets can end up homeless in shelters or even worse, worse euthanized. So I encourage people to make a plan regarding their pets And sometimes uh, that includes setting aside funds that are uh, restricted for the use for the care of the animal. And we do that in what is known as a pet trust, which is a legal vehicle to hold that money and administer it for the benefit of your pet so that you know that your pet is taken care of after you are gone. And that is essentially what a pet trust is. So Tracy, what alternatives would there be to a pet trust? There, there are alternatives to a pet trust that are relatively simple that people can utilize, um, but they're not right for every situation. So something simple that you could do is, for example, under the law of most states, pets are unfortunately considered to be tangible personal property, therefore having equal status in the law as sort of a car or piece of jewelry. And so you can, in your will, um, you know, bequeath or devise, give your property, your tangible personal property to others. So sometimes in your will, you could say, I give my dog Wilson to my sister. So that would be a valid bequest in a will, and you can certainly do that. Uh, Sometimes people will add a sum of money to that, um, plus the sum of $10,000 to help care for Wilson, that sort of thing. So that's a very sort of simple and inexpensive way to handle things. There are issues, though, that can be associated with that. 
And the issue is if you give your dog to your sister, then once your sister gets your dog, your sister owns the dog and can do anything she wants with your dog. Um, And you might, and people will say to me, well, I trust my sister and then that's fine. And then that's a good choice for people. Um, But you have to understand that once you give your pet to somebody, the pet becomes theirs to do with as they will. And also, once you give the money to the person, the money becomes the person's to do whatever they want as well. And so if there are people in your life that you know will do what you want with the money and the pet, then this is absolutely a fine choice. But many times I speak to people and they're a little concerned when I tell them this fact. So that's typically why they might go to a pet trust. Now, who would benefit most from a pet trust? Many people have others in their lives who they know will take their pets. So married couples, typically the surviving spouse or uh, couples or pe- or individuals with children, um, they know that one or more of their children will take the pet. But if you are in a situation where there's no specific person in your life who would be willing to take your pet, or someone who you want to take your pet but can't afford to take your pet, then I think that you are a good candidate for a pet trust. So maybe married couples without children or single folks, for example, or even people who know that their their kids don't want their pets. And so these sorts of folks um, are typically the, the people that I work with to implement pet trust. Sure. So what decisions do I need to make for a pet trust? So a pet trust has a lot of decisions involved with it. So we'll break it out and we'll go one by one. So uh, the first thing you have to decide is who's going to be the caretaker, right? So when we do a pet trust, um, we typically give the pet to the pet trust. So the trust owns the pet. But the trust doesn't take care of the pet, so we need a caretaker. So your caretaker is like the custodian or the pet guardian, the person or people that the pet live with. So you will need to identify who your caretaker is going to be, and we will, in the trust, actually name that caretaker. And sometimes people will name successive caretakers my sister, or if she becomes incapacitated or passes away, then my brother, or whoever, you know, you would like to name. So that is an important consideration, and that has to be named. So that's of utmost importance. Then we need the person who's going to be in charge of what you put in the pet trust. So what you're going to put in the pet trust is not only your pet, but also a sum of money. And we'll talk about a little bit later how we can figure out or determine what the right sum of money might be. So the person who's in charge of this trust, we call that person the trustee. And the trustee is really the legal owner of whatever you give to the pet trust. Okay, so the trustee would own the pet, be the owner, and also would take the money, establish a bank or an investment account, and manage that money for the benefit of the pet. The trustee would allow the caretaker to take care of the pet based upon what you have said in the trust, and then the trustee would sort of oversee that, um, making sure that the caretaker is taking proper care of the, of the pet. 
Um, an advantage of this is if the caretaker decides or something happens to the caretaker where the caretaker can no longer be the pet guardian, the caretaker could contact the trustee and say, you know, uh, this has happened and I can no longer fulfill these this role and give the pet back. And then the trustee could find a new caretaker. So basically, we have the caretaker and the trustee. And those are the parties, the primary parties that are involved in the trust. So what types of things should the pet trust pay for, Tracy? So typical things that we would put in a pet trust are things like veterinary care, food, um, all of the accessories that come with owning a pet, whether that's leashes and collars and crates and those sorts of things and toys. Uh, my dogs personally have their favorite squeaky toys that they like. Um, so there's all the things that you do to care for your pet that we would want to replicate and provide in this pet trust. And so we have language when we create pet trust that we sort of talk about all of these things, you know, is grooming, for example, boarding, you know, obviously your caretaker will go on vacation. So there needs to be uh, money available to pay for for the care, okay? So these are sort of the things that you should be dealt with and specified in the pet trust so that the trustee knows that he or she can pay for these things and the caretaker knows that um, he or she can rely upon the pet trust to pay for these things. Also, what I encourage people to do is to put a stipend for the caretaker in the pet trust. Nothing that big. Um, I've put in $500 a year, $750 a year, $1,000 a year. I think someone recently wanted me to put a couple of thousand a year. This is just sort of an annual fee that the uh, caretaker will get for caring for the pet. And then the caretaker and the trustee would sort of work out how reimbursements for things get made. So for example, veterinary bills might be paid directly from the trust, or maybe the caretaker pays for that, submits the receipts, gets reimbursed. So there would be sort of this give and take that the caretaker and the trustee have, and they would determine over time how that works best for them. So Tracy, how much money should someone put in to care for their pet? So that is a very personal decision. I have created pet trusts with anywhere from you know, twenty-five to fifty thousand in them, to two hundred and fifty to three hundred thousand in them, um, and there are some very famous pet trusts that have been created that have been in the news over the years, where people have put millions in them. And so, the thing to consider when you are determining how much to put in your pet trust is, you know, realistically speaking, how much money do you spend each year to care for your pet or pets? How many pets do you have? What is the life expectancy of those pets? What's your pet's quote unquote standard of living? Okay. Um, something I encourage my clients to consider is the fact that as pets age, just as people age, their medical costs tend to accelerate. I had, um, you know, a series of dogs over my life and um, I have golden retrievers and my last set of golden retrievers, one, you know, had a, a fair amount of medical bills as she aged and had uh, developed cancer and lots of different ailments. And so something to consider is that this veterinary care is expensive. Perhaps if you have veterinary insurance, that's a cost that we put in the pet trust. So the pet trust pays for the insurance. 
But um, these are all of the factors to consider um, when you are determining the amount of funds to put in the trust. And I encourage people to be realistic in their estimates. So once you determine the amount of the money and what the purpose of the funds are for, I think you're sort of pretty set, right? So we have our caretaker, our trustee, how much money we're putting in there and what we're using the funds for. So that really creates the body of the trust document. Tracy, who gets the remaining funds after, God forbid, the pet is gone, sadly? The last thing that you have to consider when you're creating these trusts is, what happens if after your pet is gone, uh, there's extra money left over in the trust? All the money has not been spent on the care of the pet. We call those people who will, or organizations who will get the rest of the money, the remainder beneficiaries. And so you need remainder beneficiaries, um, the person, the entity who will receive whatever's left over when your pet is no longer there. Um, The thing to think about when you are deciding your remainder beneficiaries is most pet trust laws across the country have provisions in them that say if you quote unquote, overfund or put too much money into the trust, the remainder beneficiaries can go to court, reduce the amount in the trust, and then take assets out of the trust right then and there, uh, not waiting for your pet to pass. This happened in some famous cases with Leona Helmsley. She left millions of dollars for her dog. The court reduced it. And then remainder beneficiaries were able to take that extra amount. So I think it's important when you pick your remainder beneficiaries, you pick beneficiaries that you think will not go to court to try and reduce the amount in your pet trust that care about you and your pet. And sometimes I see that people will name animal organizations here, you know, animal welfare type organizations to receive the funds. But it's really your choice who you want to name as remainder beneficiaries. But it's important to know that you should not, quote unquote, overfund your trust to be accurate in your calculations. And so that way, if there is a challenge, the trustee could say, or the attorney who drafted it can say, no, we carefully considered how much we put in this trust, and this is why we put this much in. And that way you can be ensured that your um, pet is receiving the funds you want them to receive. Tracy, uh, just curious, what reactions have you seen when you raise this to your clients? Is it a significant portion of them, uh, pet owners, who decide to take advantage of this? I would say that when I raise this as an issue, and I don't raise it with every client, I I sort of raise it uh, when I think it's appropriate for the situation, I would say it's about 50-50, quite honestly. Quite quite frankly, there are people who contact me because they want a pet trust, because I've written unspoken a lot on this subject, and it's in my bio on our website. And so I've definitely been contacted by people who are looking for this, and so have reached out for me. When I see the situation as appropriate in the estate plan, I will bring it up. And sometimes people will say, yes, I like that idea. Sometimes people have never heard of it, and they'll sort of laugh a little bit, and then we talk about it, and then they will um, kind of move forward with it. And typically, if they don't move forward with it, they'll do the bequest that I spoke about before and leave the pet with a person with a sum of money. Typically, I think people think about like dogs and cats, but 
I have a lot of people with horses, birds. Certain animals live a very, very long period of time. So dogs and cats, dogs maybe 12 to 15 or 16 years. Cats can live to 20 years. Parrots can live to like 70, I think. So the longer your pet has the likelihood of living, the more likely you need to consider this. So whenever I work with anyone with a horse, for example, I always bring this up because horses, I think, live like 30 years. So whenever I see these types of animals, I always bring it up for somebody to kind of deal with in their estate plan, especially horses, because you hear a lot of stories about people pass away and then there's nothing is done with the horse. And that's very problematic. I have a couple of clients who have farms and farm animals. A lot of times with farm animals, they will, however, partner with organizations in terms of dealing with what's going to happen to the farm animals. So I would say that mostly I get a little laughter and then people will seriously consider it. And they really have not even understood that, that it's an issue. We've been talking with Myrick O'Connell, partner and chair of the firm's Trusts and Estates Group, Tracy Craig. Tracy, how can folks contact you with questions and concerns? Well, first of all, people can look me up on our firm's website, and there you can find my phone number, which is 508-929-1632, or anyone can email me at my firm email address, which is tcraig at myrickoconnell.com. Thank you again for taking time out of your busy schedule. We appreciate your joining us on the On Air with Myrick O'Connell podcast, Tracy. Thanks so much. Oh, you're very welcome. It was my pleasure. On behalf of attorney Tracy Craig and Myrick O'Connell, I'm Howard Kaplan. Thanks for joining us. Take care and stay safe. This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Myrick O'Connell. It is intended to inform you of developments in the law and to provide information of general interest. It is not intended to constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. This podcast may be considered advertising under the rules of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. Music